Hey everyone, welcome to episode 55 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina, with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts, I'm Chris Castor-Apple, and with me as always is Collins Mullen. Hey Collins. Hey Chris, what's going on? Not much, just thinking a lot about Pro Tour shenanigans in general. So much Pro Tour shenanigans. A lot to go over today. Definitely, I think... I think that's pretty much going to be the focus of the show today. I mean, we've got all three formats wrapped up in it, so uh, <laughs> yeah, lots to talk about for sure. Yeah, could definitely go over kind of you know break down what's going on in each of those formats, what we saw from the Pro Tour, you know, all the goodies. Yeah, definitely. I that was pretty much my weekend was just watching the Pro Tour, playing some Magic Online and some video games and stuff. So it was it was a nice weekend. But you uh, you played in a, a PPTQ this weekend, right? I did, yeah. Played in a local PPTQ, PPTQ. Jeez, so many, <laughs> so many P's. At uh, at my local shop at Atomic Empire, which is always fun. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's nice when it's like ten minutes from your house, you know. <laughs> yeah, but uh, people turned out for this one by the by the top eight that I saw. Yeah, I think notables in the top eight were uh, myself, Becky Adelman, Dylan Donegan, Ali Antrazi. I'm sure a few other people I'm, I'm forgetting, but it was a it was a good crowd that came out that night. Nice. Did you just play humans again? So I actually got to play uh, Vengevine at this tournament. Oh right, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I was super excited. Uh, shoutouts to to Lee, who got me hooked up with the deck like the Thursday before the tournament, and I was able to to pilot it to to the top eight of the PPTQ. Um, oh, he must have he must have well, done some work getting those cards because I actually just placed an order for Avenge Vines and, and Bridges to bring back to Lee because they're, they're, they were much cheaper here than in the States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, good call on that part then. Um, yeah, they the cards spiked heavily in price. I Got think it. like pretty much all of the cards in that deck went way up. Avenge um, yeah. Vines uh, were like flirting with $100 at one point, and I think they went back down to reasonable, reasonable in quotes, like 70 or something. Jeez. But... Yeah, pretty crazy there. Yeah, I uh, luckily I'm really glad that Lee asked me to uh, put that order because I was going to get Vengevines and Bridges, but I was like kind of being lazy about it and putting it off. But once I mm-hmm. I said that I'd do it for him, I went ahead and put the order in, and then the next day they jumped up even here. They were right. pretty expensive, but yeah. But I managed to, and it, it was on Friday, so it was like during the PT that I that I ordered it. But yeah, just barely in time. And I had multiple sellers try to cancel my orders, and I said, no, please please send the the cards. I still want these Venge Vines that I paid well, good. 15 euros for. Yeah, right. So yeah, <laughs> so, yeah uh, before we jump into it, I want to thank our new patrons. We've got Mika, Alexander, and Brian. So thank you guys so much for supporting the show. Uh, if, you, if anybody else wants to lend us some support, you can head over to patreon.com slash mtg grindcast we are getting pretty close to the point where we are gonna send out some tokens i think i think we may even jump the gun a little bit once we get those tokens in we might just send them out even if we haven't quite hit the like threshold goal threshold because uh <laughs> I, I don't want to just sit here on these tokens when we get them i'd like I'd yeah like and you know i think we're excited to give back a little bit so that that should be fun yeah so if you get in, then you'll you'll end up with some tokens pretty soon. So that would be that'll be nice. So we're gonna spend most of this time talking about the PT, 
but we got to start with the Keeper Mall because that's that's what we do here on the MDG Grindcast. I have been playing a bunch of Red Black and complaining about it a lot, but also winning with it a reasonable amount. It's just not a fun deck to play. But we're gonna go with one of my hands that I I I opened with. Um, so this is game two against the new Nexus of Fate deck that I assume we're gonna be talking about quite a bit. Uh, during the yeah. standard portion of this episode. So this is game two. We are on the play because you always lose game one against the Nexus of Fate deck with the red-black midrange. Um, <laughs> and this hand is... So this is a weird one. A lot of our hands are like kind of land light or kind of light on action. In you know, you we're, we're trying to think about whether it's worth keeping and, and trying to dig out of it. This is one that I think we haven't really seen before. So this is four mountains an on-crop crasher, and two insult to injury. And this is a case of what do you do about having a very medium hand, but with a very important sideboard card for the matchup. And that's that's what this is. This is, the two insult to injuries are really important in the matchup, and uh, there's not a lot else in this hand. You've only got one threat in it, and, uh, you know, just not a lot of action. So I'll tell you what I did and and how it worked out after this. Uh, but uh, if if you have any off the cuff thoughts on on keeping a hand like this, or or mulling a hand like this, yeah, I think that my first question that's going to be pretty important to my decision here is how many insult injuries do we have post board in this matchup? So we've got two insult to injuries post board, okay. and they are they're both and in then our they're both in our hand. Okay, so that to me is a much bigger reason for me to keep this hand. Um, mm-hmm. And honestly, even if we had four, I would probably lean towards keeping this hand anyways. But, you know, you can see how the difference of, like, you know, if you have a ton of those, like, good sideboard cards post-board, you, you might be less inclined to keep kind of like a sketch seven that, that includes one of those. Um, but if you don't have very many of those, you know, clutch sideboard cards, then if you have a hand with one of them in, you're, you're going to need to value it much higher. And because Insult Injury is so powerful post-board against these Nexus of Fate uh, Fog decks, I, I'm pretty inclined to keep this hand. Because even if, you know, we can't really, like, kill them until, like, turn six or so, uh, if we just, like, go, you know, turn three on Crop Crasher, turn four, you know, insult it for another six damage, and then, like, maybe turn six we can, like, insult and injury... Like, that should be able to kill them. And part of what helps me make this decision is that I've actually played a good amount with this Nexus of Fate deck. And I think that they they typically aren't going to be bringing in, like, negates or anything that, that handles the um, insult to injuries. And they also don't typically have many cards that deal with creatures, because they're just really banking on the fogs. So I think that, you know, even though our clock's pretty slow and we only have, like, a turn three threat... You know, if we draw anything that increases our clock even a little bit, you know, this hand all, all of a sudden becomes really, really strong. So I think that I would, I would, I would keep this hand. Yeah, and I, I think that's, like, I agree with that. I kept this hand. Didn't draw great, but I drew one more threat, and that was enough for Insult to deal just an incredible amount of damage. Yeah, um, yeah. Like, this hand loses if you draw no other threat at all, or if they have the, like, completely insane, like, Turn three gift, turn four to fairy, fog you, turn five, just like chain nexuses until you die. But like a random six is probably not going to beat that either. 
So, you know, that's that's okay. That's not really part of the calculus here. Yeah, and I think this is just an example of how sideboard cards hugely polarize some matchups. Like, the matchup is terrible if you don't have insult to injury. It's borderline unwinnable unless you get a really fast hand that is not characteristic of the way that the red-black mid-range deck is built with also like multiple non-combat sources of damage too like the matchup is is really hard if you have an insult to injury the matchup goes from very hard to very very easy and uh, i I think giving up the insults to injury in hopes of having a better curve like even if you have a great curve it like you often still lose the game and the the insult is just such a key to to not having that happen you know this is like insult to injury is like rest in peace out of a mid-range deck against dredge like it's that important to the matchup and i I think you just can't afford to to give it away in a in a matchup like this i completely agree for sure well then that one was easier than i i guess i was anticipating (laughs) yeah but you know i think that we 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 made some good points that can be taken away and applied to to other to other you know mulligan decisions so that's that's i think this was a pretty good uh hand to put here for sure yeah and gives us plenty of time to talk about the Pro Tour. So, <laughs> Yay, Pro Tour! Yeah. Pro Tour 25th anniversary. So we're going to talk about each of the formats individually, but, you know, first, you know, we might as well talk about, like, our experience as, as viewers and just how the PT was in general. It was really fun watching the, like, a team tournament at the highest level. Like, that was very cool. I agree, yeah. Really fun to see kind of, like, the, the, the teamwork that happened. And I, I really do think that the uh, the teams that work well together were able to have a lot more success than, you know, just like generic, a bunch of good players teams. So that's always kind of fun to see. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was a little interesting. I mean, I, the feature match area was set up weirdly, which with the, the yeah, tables I, like very far apart from each other. I was thinking about the same thing. When I first saw kind of like what they their setup had going on, and I kind of like pulled from my experience playing in team events. I would have been pretty upset, honestly, to to like yeah. <laughs> be at that pro tour and walk in on the you know be called to coverage and walk in on on that kind of setting. I'd be like, I want to talk to my teammates, and my mm-hmm. other teammates like thirty feet away from me or whatever. <laughs> um, not ideal. They did do a lot of pausing the off camera matches and 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 that like allowed for a fair amount. Right. Of- right. Right participation but yeah it definitely was a weird just physical setup but they did a great job of pausing matches and making sure to get lots of them on camera that was that was very cool and if they were able to do that without holding the tournament up too much then that's that's definitely good good job to them well done coverage yeah i and i i kind of thought about the same things is that like you know my initial thoughts on on the setup was like oh this is probably gonna be bad but once I saw that they were like pausing the matches, allowing the players to stand up and kind of walk over to the other tables, that that kind of like mitigated that issue for me, and I thought that it was probably fine for the players there. Yeah, yeah. It was a little too bad that they didn't have backup matches or time walk matches. At least in day one, it seemed to get better on day two for whatever reason. But on day one, and to a lesser extent on day two, there seemed to be a lot of downtime. There was not as much magic as you would hope for on a, a pro tour stream, and especially because they've they've really upgraded GP coverage lately, and a, a huge percentage of airtime is watching matches with commentary. 
and that's thanks to their their time walk matches and stuff and maybe the the team format meant that they just didn't quite have the the setup to do it but it felt like you know we could have had a little more a little more magic played yeah i agree you know i i also spent a good amount of saturday or i guess friday um whichever day i wasn't playing in the tournament <laughs> it was it was friday <laughs> i spent a lot of day one kind of watching the the coverage and i i think grand prix have been doing a really good job of like kind of always having magic on either it being like a time walk event or something else uh and that's you know i guess this like spoiled me a little bit for that and i was kind of hoping that that was gonna be the case as well for the for the pro tour but i agree that like a lot of the time they were just kind of like talking about stuff that felt like filler and wasn't really mm-hmm. that engaging i yeah. guess uh, unless there was an actual match happening yeah and, and that's I, I mean i don't think it's that gps have like spoiled us i think they've given us a fair expectation of like what coverage can be. yeah that's fair that's fair and and it's too bad because you know this is the same team and it's a more important tournament so i mm-hmm. think it's reasonable to expect uh, a large percentage of the stream to be actual coverage of matches <laughs> yeah yeah for sure one thing that's come up a bunch in conversation is you know the fact that there was no limited at this tournament because it was a team tournament and it was just you know team trios constructed all the way through and some people very strongly said hey this was great it, it was a better experience for the viewers uh you know you focus more on constructed and it might be time to take draft out of the pro tour entirely and obviously some people disagree with that so just if, if you got any thoughts about you know potentially like removing draft from the pro tour or changing its place as as a part of the pro tour or something like that yeah, I I really believe that drafting and limited in general is a very core element of of magic. And I think that if you want to succeed at the pro tour level, that's a skill that you should have. I think that, you know, those skill sets really are testing a lot of your fundamentals uh, much more than the constructed formats. Cuz the constructed formats, you know, they they test your fundamental like in-game skills as well. But I would say that maybe even like half of the game is is played for constructed in like the testing time that you kind of like put into it in terms of like finding the best deck and tuning it appropriately. That all like plays out a lot in your games where you've kind of just like already like figured out your game plans and everything and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I think that both that skill and the skill of being able to draft and just play good magic, you know, fundamentally is, is really important if you want to succeed at the Pro Tour level. Like, you know, I, I think that the, the Pro Tour should be kind of an all-encompassing thing. So, you know, I'm not I'm not sad that it wasn't here at this Pro Tour. Like, this Pro Tour was a unique Pro Tour. It was a team Pro Tour. And it really tested heavily, uh, like, the constructed stuff and then, like, a, a lot of other elements, like, you know, team and everything. But in general, moving forward, I, I would be pretty sad to see limited leave the pro tour entirely yeah i mean i you know i'm a limited player at heart it's what i enjoy playing the most and and what i think i'm you know best at by a a reasonable margin although i've I've gotten a lot better at constructed over the past couple of years so i i would definitely be disappointed if it left the pro tour entirely you know some people have posited ideas about like you know why don't what if we had like separate tournaments for for draft some sort of like 
limited championship thing or something like that so it's still played at a high level i mean you know like pro tours weren't always all split events it used to be there were draft pro tours and constructed pro tours which uh, you know that was before live event coverage and because having viewers is important and coverage of constructed is much more popular than coverage of limited i don't i don't know if they could ever go back to having entirely limited pts I also think that one of the reasons, and I don't think limited coverage is ever going to be as popular as constructed coverage, but I think that the art of covering a draft still hasn't been totally figured out. I think, you know, watching drafts on GP streams and PT streams, it feels like we're missing something here. And I wonder if people wouldn't like the streams more if we did something like follow one player through the entire draft, like watch all of their matches so you get to know their deck and get to know their decision making and like have something at stake there, um, like a level of continuity instead of jumping around from different decks that like you didn't see drafted, you don't really know what went into building them and that sort of thing. I, I don't know if there are actually ways to make limited much more popular to watch. And, and yeah, I mean, I am definitely sympathetic to like, I, I think limited is just a super important skill and to take it out of what it means to be like a pro tour champion would be, it would be a shame. Yeah. And I, I do agree that there are definitely things that they can do to make limited more viewable. I don't really know all the answers to that, but, uh, I, I, I do kind of, you know, off the cuff, like the idea of following one player through, but I can see why they might shy away from that because generally players want to watch, viewers want to watch players who are doing well and you know just like the chance that the player that you end up following like oh three is the pot or something could be like pretty disappointing for right, right uh for viewers but as long as that is as long as that player is reasonably liked and well respected and, and people are invested in watching them even if they're doing bad then i think that that could potentially fix that problem yeah yeah i mean like i'll watch finkel oh three a draft that's fine Right, exactly. See, so, you know, uh, I think that there are, you know, definitely some upsides to that too, so. Uh, but I, uh, the problem is that I think that the other part is that limited in general is just significantly less popular, a less popular format than, than any of the constructive formats, really. Well, you know, it's probably more popular maybe than Legacy now, but in terms of, like, you know, standard and modern, I think that the average Magic player plays standard and modern, or, you know, at least modern, and, but, like... You know, a lot of Magic players don't even touch Limited. Yeah. So. Which is crazy to me. Like, yeah, Limited is the best part of Magic. <laughs> right. Um, I think it's, honestly, I think it's a product of so many events that are held these days are constructed only because those are just easier to facilitate mm -hmm. as a tournament organizer. And, and just a product of that being the case is has kind of like created what we know today as like generally magic players who play in tournaments primarily only play constructed. You know, if we wanted to change that, I think that big companies like Star City or Chain of Fireball or some somebody would just need to uh, put more limited content out there. Like, you know, limited opens, draft opens or whatever that we used to have. Like if those became like semi-regular, I think that, you know, that could potentially change kind of like the, the social dynamic that we see with it all. But it's just not nearly as profitable for these big TOs outside of, you know, the Grand Prix to, to run any limited event. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is a much huger event to run logistically dealing with all these 
packs and stuff. And so I definitely get that. And ultimately, you know, I don't think it would, I don't think limited would ever be as popular on coverage as constructed. It's much easier to get excited about a constructed stream because you're, you're seeing people play out like exciting new decks in real time that you can just take to your next tournament if you want. And that's not really, you know, you can learn draft strategies and stuff, but it's kind of more exciting to get a new toy, which is what like looking at a new 75 is than it is to like learn a new skill, I I guess. Yeah. So, and and, like getting better at draft by watching people drafting is definitely a very slow process. So it, it doesn't have the like, instant gratification sort of thing as as like watching blue black death shadow with with reanimate do great and then you're like ooh okay i'm just gonna play this at my next legacy tournament and i think another part of it is that like you know players who who understand a constructed format can kind of like jump into a constructed match and and have a good idea of what's going on they can like look at a match going on and say oh this is hollow one versus humans i know i know the cards here and i know how it plays out and i can kind of like be invested in 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 seeing that but if you jump into a limited match you you're not really as familiar with the player's particular deck and they probably know a lot more about what's going on in the game than the viewer could ever really know without you know being there like from the beginning of the draft process right so so maybe the whole idea of like following one drafter through is is really good because it might it might give a, more of a window into like you know familiarity with what's actually happening like you know okay this guy drafted this like sweet green splash three colors you know deck and let's see how it matches up against the field and over these three matches or whatever like that could be mm-hmm. fun but you know we we definitely like there's a reason that our our podcast is targeted towards constructed. It just like makes more sense to cover. There's there's a lot to talk about and like developments every single week, and people are just more interested in it. So you know we're we're as guilty as anybody else of riding on this train, I guess. But with that said, let's uh, let's talk about some constructed. Let's do it. So what's going on in standard? Standard. So I think the best place to start for each of these formats is to just look at the meta breakdown because it's hard to pull like actual results from a team tournament. We don't have individual records or anything like that. So I think a good starting place is just like what the pros chose to play at this tournament. And if you just look at sort of like the top decks, it's not super surprising. It's, uh, you know, Red Black Aggro, Steely Snoppy, Grixis Midrange, but mono blue storm, Esper control, mono red aggro. But if you look at the percentages, it's it's pretty insane. Red black aggro forty percent of the field, steel leaf stompy eighteen percent of the field, Grixis midrange about eight percent, and then the rest of the decks are five percent or below. So this was just a tournament full of red black. Yeah, red black everywhere for sure. So that's kind of like the the takeaway I guess from the tournament. And continuing on to kind of like what we saw that weekend, like Red Black also dominated the, the the Magic Online event that was happening kind of parallel to it. I think it was a PTQ. If you look at the results of that, like all of like a vast majority of all of the X1s and XOs were were Red Black, which is, you know, a pretty crazy result to see. Yeah, and I mean it's just a very powerful deck. It's just full of good cards. I've been kind of frustrated playing it because and and to be clear about what this deck is, I mean, they, they consolidated the black-red decks. You know, last PT, they sort of separated it into red-black aggro versus red-black midrange. Here, they just consolidated it all, calling it red-black aggro. 
But really, all of these lists are very mid-rangey. They're almost all the 25 land, 24 to 25 land, with somewhere between like 7 and 9 of the big, you know, 4, four or 5 mana mythics. Um, and, you know, leaning way more towards... There's a lot more abrades, cut to ribbons, unlicensed disintegrations, magma sprays, very, very few lightning strikes or shocks or something like that. So these are absolutely mid-range decks they just happen to have like scrap heap scrounger and, and carries of as early drops so they can put on that early pressure and, and force opponents to respond so generally like playing the deck like it is very powerful all of your cards are good but sometimes your game ones like you just draw two abrades against blue white and it feels awful <laughs> but uh, you know that's just the risk you take to play a deck that's a as powerful as this and it lines up really 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 well against pretty much any creature based deck in the format yeah, it's, it's just kind of like, you know, like late into the, you know, legality of a lot of these sets, you know, I think that we're coming up on a rotation pretty soon here. And when that happens, the card power level becomes really, really strong. And I think this is just kind of the deck that's just playing all of these like really, really powerful red aggressive cards. So that kind of, you know, it kind of makes sense that, you know, not only is it going to have the most success, but it's also kind of not really going to be exciting. You know, like, these cards have been around forever, they fit really well together, we know that, and, you know, and it's just kind of like jamming the same stuff. Yep. Yeah, and as far as, like, bad matchups go, you know, this this PT at least really didn't have too many of them. Like, the, the control decks were... Of a very small minority of the metagame you know uh four blue white approach decks two blue white control decks although the the winning team did have blue white control as their standard deck um seven esper control decks you know all told like even adding in turbo fog into that that's about 10 percent of the metagame that's control and it's not like you automatically lose to control as red black it's just game one is is really clunky and if you draw a bunch of unlicensed disintegrations and abrades uh I mean, I mean, you pretty much need to start on Bomat Courier to win, and if you don't have it in your opening hand, then you're probably not going to beat most of the control decks game one, which has been very frustrating playing it online because there are more control decks online than there were in this particular tournament. But every time I see somebody play like a forest, I just like feel like I can't lose. The cards are just too powerful, match up too well against just regular creatures. Yeah. That makes sense, for sure. But I think that we should talk a little bit about this Turbo Fog deck that you mentioned a little bit, because I think, honestly, that was kind of the talk of the tournament here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and kind of the talk of, like, the MTG community in general. Uh, <laughs> even outside <laughs> of, like, of is, the, is the oh, deck no. good? Right. Yeah, yeah, this is... The buy -a box promo is now, like, a real card in a real standard deck. It's a four of that the deck is based around, and it is not available in booster packs. I I don't know. There are a lot of thoughts going around on that, and I, I don't know if I've really kind of, like, settled into my own opinions about Nexus of Fate in particular. So the reality is that the cards are pretty hard to acquire, um, and as a result of that, players who have a Nexus Fate kind of just get to, like, name a price a little bit um, because they're <laughs> so hard to acquire. They could just, just say, um, you know, you want this Nexus Fate? 100 bucks or whatever. And, you know, if somebody says yes, then all of a sudden that card is just worth 100 bucks to them, which is, you know, 
kind of crazy and and a little a little strange um right if you have time before the tournament to order them from tcg or something like that you're probably going to pay around like 35 or so which isn't it isn't crazy you know that's like a little more than teferi yeah like honestly that's just kind of like i think normal for like the 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 hardest to acquire standard cards right right you know i think 35 dollars is like a good ceiling for for a standard card in my opinion definitely uh, so I, I like if we're just talking about that price, then that's fine. But I think you know, like if you wanted to pick this up for a local tournament for like an IQ or something one weekend, even or even like an open because e- the vendors could be sold out. Like it might just not exist in your area, and th- so that's that's pretty tough on, on its own. Yeah, yeah, and right, you know, just like g- making sure that the masses have the availability to these cards, I think, is also really important because you know. Card availability is something that a lot of people struggle with anyways, right? Like, you know, even with the normal, like, mythics and stuff, if you... It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like week one of standard, right? People are scrambling for a bunch of Teferis because that they know that it's it's going to be busted. And, uh, you know, the tournament's coming up this weekend and nobody has them quite yet. It feels like that, but it feels like just like a constant level of that that is going to be harder to, like, go away. Everybody has their Teferis by now, Right. But, you know, people might not have their Nexus of Fates for, for a couple more weeks. Um, and if they want to play in Grand Prix Orlando this weekend, then they might just, like, not be able to play this Turbo Fog deck that they've been testing on Magic Online and really enjoy. And that just kind of sucks, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this Buy a Box promo philosophy is pretty weird to me. Like, they, they've tried some really bizarre stuff with it. And I think the old way they did it was pretty sweet like alternate art versions of good cards in the set you know like i i don't remember all of the buy a box promos but like back in the day you know like celestial colonnade was was a buy a box promo i think supreme verdict was one right like like these are good cards that it's nice to get a free copy of but you know you're not the supply isn't restricted by the number of buy a box promos and then they did like weird stuff with it by just making the buy a box promos terrible you know like uh burning sun's avatar was one like why that's clearly not a standard playable card what who would be excited to get this as their buying box promo what's the you know the purpose of the promo is to encourage people to buy boxes from their local stores and i think that the just like the incentives don't really make a lot of sense here because their limited supply like depending on your wpn status you get 20 40 or 60 of these promos and like number one if your store is healthy like you're not gonna be made or broken by like people being a little more excited to buy booster boxes at the beginning of the legality of the set like what's your margin on a booster box like 25 dollars or something like that 30 dollars you know you sell even if you sold 20 boxes that you wouldn't have sold otherwise then that's uh, like $600 difference or something like that. That's, you know, no store is operating at a point where like $600 additional profit is going to be like a huge impact on the store. So I'm not really, you know, four times a year or whatever. I I just don't really get like what the the total goal of the, the buy a box promo is and how this matches up with it. And then the fact that it's, you know, a card that you can only get from this and and is really restricting supply in a way that may affect people just trying to play their favorite standard deck 
I, I think the like incentives and results here are not really lining up. Yeah, no, and not really, you know, covering the consequences of doing something like this. Like, mm-hmm. you know, a store might like look at the numbers and be like, oh, hey, you know, six hundred more dollars. All right, let's do it. Let's. I'm in. But you know, six hundred dollars doesn't really cover the cost of what it means to the players to not have access to cards that they want to put in their deck. And not to mention that, like, once the card is super expensive, then there are super weird incentives for the store to, you know, maybe tell players, oh, sorry, we're all out of buy a box promos because they're going to make more money just by, like, turning around and selling these Nexuses of Fate that they're not supposed to sell than by selling a couple extra boxes. Right, yeah. And I feel like that was... That was kind of the initial concern that I had, because we talked about Nexus of Fate on the podcast weeks ago, and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I kind of just expressed the concern of, like, I don't like putting stores in a position where they have a bunch of these things that's worth a lot of money that they're not allowed to sell. It just feels like that's just opening it up for abuse. Yeah, for abuse. That's pretty pretty impossible to police, right, from, from Wizard's side. So, right, I just kind of didn't like that whole side of it. And, you know, because it's, you know, you're you're giving stores stacks of, like, 100 of these things that they could sell for, like, $30 a piece. And they're just not allowed to do that until, you know, somebody sells it to them uh, to go into their, like, inventory, right? So that, you know, that all feels just a little strange and loose. Yeah, I agree. The best orders that you give, that you can give are ones that like the people taking the orders are likely to follow or will want to follow. And and this one just, it definitely creates perverse incentives. I, I think that's, that's an important thing to, to note, but more relevant to this podcast is the <laughs> deck itself. So what yeah. do we think about turbo fog? Anyways, turbo fog. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, honestly, I think the deck is, is really good. I think that, um, <laughs> it was pretty perfect for this pro tour weekend it beat up on red black. It beat up on mono green, and together those two decks alone created you know a, a, a huge percentage of the metagame. And uh, you know it even had like pretty good tools against the control decks post board. Uh, yeah, I don't. Was really really strong. I, I don't think you're buying your way back into the control matchups with that sideboard. I mean, I, I oh yeah, like Yamoing Chung's plan of like uh of carnage tyrants post board like it's cute and it's great and it's probably going to catch people by surprise and it'll it's definitely a great plan against the blue black decks but if people are playing blue white which i think is actually a great choice this weekend if if people are playing blue white then you know if they think oh this person might be bringing in carnage tyrants he's going to leave in a couple of fumigates and it'll be fine because the rest of their deck is counter magic that just beats you and even right. if you have negates and stuff, like you're not going to be resolving your Teferi against the actual control deck because they're getting better post board too. They're bringing in Jace's defeats and negates, and I, I mean, I, I think that this deck was a great choice for this PT. It you cannot beat it with with mono green. I, I think if you play mono green and you think you might play against this deck, you either don't play Mono Green, or you have to be on the Blue Splash rather than the Black Splash. Yeah, I was going to mention, I really like the Blue Splash out of Mono Green. Um, yeah. Because I think that that alone turns the matchup against Turbo Fog into, uh, honestly, like pretty favorable post-board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can see that. So the way... The, like By way of explanation of that, the way that the Turbo Fog deck has played out when I've played against it is it is not a deck if it doesn't have Teferi in play. 
the cards just don't work if it's not drawing an additional card and untapping its lands. So if you can construct your deck, whether naturally or have a sideboard plan, to make it good at keeping Teferi off the table, you will be heavily favored against the Turbo Fog deck. So yeah. um, whether that's with Negates or Vraska's Contempts or whatever... Uh, Sorcerer's Spyglass is a really good answer that any deck can ooh. have access to. Yeah, that's excellent. That is, that's a really good point. Yeah, and they might bring in cast out, but they only have a couple, and they might not be bringing it in against you. You know, like like Dave Williams' sideboard plan against mono green and against red black was no changes. So right. yeah, yeah. Obviously, like if people are boarding in hate, then that that sideboard plan can't can't stand anymore. But yeah, the spyglass is is clearly great and forces them at least at the bare minimum to take a turn off to deal with it and that's probably enough for you to kill the time walk deck yeah for sure so yeah i mean i think that you know while this deck was really really strong for for that weekend um moving forward in the metagame people are going to be able to easily hate it out i'm, I'm pretty confident mm-hmm. so many decks that it like quote unquote just like beats always are going to have access to tools post board like sorcerer spyglass or negates or uh, insult to injury is just another really good card against it. Yeah, I I have not lost to it when I've had an insult to injury in my hand. Um, right, and so. I wouldn't expect you to because they're not bringing in like their own counter magic, right, to like fight a war over your you know red black cards or whatever. Right, because um, they don't care about most of them after turn four. Right. So uh, lost legacy is another card that I would expect to see a, you know a good amount of once people kind of catch on. Now, are you casting that to exile their Nexus of Fates, or are you casting that to exile their Teferis? I mean, just um, in general. Obviously, it's game state dependent. But I what's think I, the... would, I would probably start off with Nexus of Fate, because without that, they just really don't have any way to win the game, and they don't have the inevitability, right? So I, I would probably hit Nexus of Fate initially. Yeah, that's probably true, because then they're just like an awkward Teferi deck that isn't right. like building towards something. Right, because because Car- Karn's Temporal Sundering exiles itself. Like, there's no way to recur that. Um, also, yeah, one thing to keep in mind. Like, I've heard some people uh, talking about play patterns with Mari's Conjecture that the deck is not capable of doing. Because remember that Nexus, neither Nexus of Fate nor Karn's Temporal Sundering go to the graveyard. So, don't uh, don't think that Mari's Conjecture, the Mari Conjecture, is going to be returning a, a time walk to their hand. That's not what it's in there for. Um, now, if they ever get to stage three on the saga and cast a time walk then yes the game is (laughs) over but (laughs) yeah yeah should be yeah i mean the deck is really great against an unprepared metagame i've definitely played against it with mono green with the black splash and that's just not remotely winnable um but uh you know if, if you understand how it works if you know that taking it apart you know like taking out teferi kind of hobbles the deck in a really extraordinary way and then there are just, uh, you know, hate cards that work well against it. So if you choose not to lose against this deck, you, you will beat it. If you ignore it, then... And that's, that's I think, the, the part that's getting me a little bit. Like, am I going... Are, are people going to play it this weekend? I'm, I'm playing in a GP this weekend. Are people going to play it? Should I run these insults to injury that I'm only boarding in against this deck? Uh, I mean, they... They like dramatically change my matchup percentage against it, but then I'm you know losing those sideboard slots against the rest of the field. Right, for sure. So you know it'll be interesting to see what happens this weekend in Orlando. Like if this Turbo Fog deck is still reasonably positioned, or if it's um, you know going to be hated out. 
or if people are even going to try to bring it. So we'll, we'll kind of see what happens here. Yeah. So uh, Reservoir Combo was also, you know, relatively... I guess nothing was heavily played except for Red Black, but Reservoir Combo was the fourth most played deck. And uh, I, I think it's... I'm honestly really happy to see Reservoir Combo and... And even though the play pattern of Turbo Fog is like kind of obnoxious, I'm happy to see it in the format because I like that there are these like combo-y decks attacking from a different axis. I, I think it makes standard more interesting and, and diverse in, in deck archetype. So I'm, I'm glad to see them. And the Reservoir combo deck is, is pretty cool. I think it's evolved a fair amount at this point to where the like actually comboing off is kind of secondary and using Karn to and just like the way that the cards generate like tempo and card advantage uh is kind of the primary plan of the deck and so you have to be ready to fight against like psi card advantage and like zero mana karns um yeah and and so you know like practicing against reservoir combo is, is really important to figuring this matchup out yeah i definitely agree with that just a lot going on that you're you're not going to really expect just looking at the cards on the board until you've like had experience playing against it. Yeah, just a, as a, you know, I, we want to get to modern and stuff, but from my experience playing against it, the cards that matter kind of in order are Psy, Inspired Statuary, and Karn, and Metallic Rebuke. Uh, and so those are like the most powerful cards in the deck. So if you have an Abraid, you want to save it for Inspiring Statuary. You know, like I keep Cut to Ribbons in, even though it's only got one target, but it, it's the most important target. You can't let Psy stay in play. And Karn often comes down and makes a 4-4 four, four, or a 5-5, five, five, so you need to be ready for that to happen. And then you always need to be ready to get Metallic Rebuked. And, and the Metallic Rebuke really makes this deck tick. It makes that sort of like mid-range, grind them out value, like make huge guys and counter the things that matter plan work very well so they're not Agreed. just trying to kill you with the reservoir they are they have lots of ways to do that yeah for sure yeah i mean just kind of looking at it the deck is way more multifaceted than you might expect yeah definitely i don't know so all of this stuff put together makes me you know like you're not going to go to a gp and, and have it be 40 percent red black i think this pro tour like the fact that it's a pro tour number one and the fact that it's a team event really kind of distills the meta down a, a, a fair bit. Um, so I don't think you're going to go to a GP and have it be 40% red black uh, because people go farther afield in GPs. But if the meta is anything like this, then I am pretty into just playing like straight blue white control. I, I don't know if, if that's just a terrible idea, but it, you know, I want my sideboard negates. I want my great game one matchup against red black. Like this seems like a decent place to be at this weekend. No, I mean honestly, I I love that idea. I think it's it's really strong. Um, I think that blue white has excellent matchups, kind of against all of like the major decks that we're seeing here. Red black, mono green. Um, you even have a lot of really good tools against you know this this fog deck and like the reservoir combo deck. Uh, so right, I think that you know I think the the just the blue white control with the Teferi win con is is kind of what you're looking for. Yeah. Ugh. I gotta go find Teferi somewhere, I guess. <laughs> Teferi. Oh, I yeah. also have not practiced with, with blue light control almost at all. So that's... This might be a tough one. I might just end up playing red-black because I have it behind me and I know how to play it and it's still fine. But 
I don't know what to do. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be hard to go wrong with Red Black. Like a tuned Red Black list that, you know, has answers for, you know, the things that we're saying, you can't really go wrong for it. It's, it's 40% of the metagame for a reason. It's really strong, just kind of on its own. Um, yeah. But, you know, if you're, if you're hoping to get a, like, deck selection advantage, then, you know, Red Black is, is kind of the worst place to be because it's <laughs> yes. the most popular deck. <laughs> While it can be tuned well, I think that, you know, if you're trying to get that kind of advantage, it's just better to do probably blue-white control. Yep. Yep. I agree. All right. So I guess we can move on to modern now. Modern. Uh, can I say uh, Can I say I told you so yet? You can absolutely say that you told me so. I told um. you so. Vengevine. <laughs> Vengevine. It's good. It's a yeah, real Yeah, and it saw a lot of play at the Pro Tour. I was honestly surprise you know even though i you know i kind of called it as like maybe potentially the next big deck in modern yep i don't think you're wrong the you know the the fast turnaround that the pro tour players were able to kind of do and just like you know we saw 10 people with, with venge vines 10 teams with the venge vine on, on their modern seat and then like even like a couple more like jund versions of it so i'm not sure what the actual numbers were but yeah it was really cool to see that oh you're right Looks like just one Jun Vengevine version, but yeah, that's one more. Eleven total Vengevine decks. And I don't think the Jun Vengevine deck was too Jundy. I, I I guess I don't have that list in front of me, so it might have been. I know there was one with like a Grizzly Salvage and like one or two more green cards. I'm not sure if that's the one that was categorized as uh, Jun Vengevine. Um, but yeah, it definitely like this is the new hot deck in modern and. You know, like, I'm not particularly excited to play Hollow One if I could play this instead. Yeah, for sure. I think that this is just Hollow One 2.0, honestly. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's uh, you know, it shares the consistency, and it's just doing something generally more powerful than what Hollow One was doing. So, yeah, I, I like it a lot. Um, and, you know, I don't even think that any of the versions are fully tuned appropriately yet. I think that we're, we're kind of, you know, a couple of weeks off of really finding the best version of this deck. And it's already still crushing. So, because people, people, nobody's put in Shriekhorn into this deck yet. And, and that card <laughs> is just going to bust it wide open once people realize that they can do that. Yeah, yeah. The only thing wrong with Shriekhorn is that it's not a creature. But you are putting it in the non-creature slots, so it's fine. Yeah, like, right. Those, we those run flex slots. Creatures. Yeah. There's no one-mana creature that you can run. You know, the only creature people have been running in those flex slots that I've seen is Blood Rage Brawler. And I mean, that card costs two mana and is probably fine. If there were like a one mana creature that just like lets you disc, if there's like a, a one mana two three that makes you discard a card when it comes into play, like that card would be great in this deck. And so I think Blood Rage Brawler is just like a more awkward version of that fantasy card. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there are some like interesting options once you do end up going the the Shrikarn route, because then you become more of like a, a like a self mill deck than anything else. But you're you need to mill faster than just like going to your draw steps, right? So you know, I think that like some interesting cards like Haunted Dead might be more applicable. Just cards that allow you to you know mill them over and then use them to like discard these dead cards in your hand, like Venge Vines and Bridges and stuff like that. So, you know, I think that once this list gets tuned into kind of like more of, of that version, its consistency is going to skyrocket once the people like figure all these things out. And it's going to be able to maintain the same power level as it has. Yeah, um, yeah. So, um, you know, 
Honestly, I'm a little scared for Modern to see what happens with this deck. <laughs> Get yeah, your Leyline I mean, Avoids ready. Yeah, yeah. That that's that is definitely the thing. Is like a lot of the ways that you immediately jump to to combat this deck don't really don't. I mean, they they work, but they don't always work. You know, we saw it beat turn two rest in peace on the play. Like Easily. You, like 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 it just put six power into play on its turn one, got its graveyard exiled, played a bushwhacker, and just did enough damage. Game and over. <laughs> game. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Hilarious. So yeah, I um. It's, it's definitely very real, um, for sure. So, like, Leyline is becoming kind of the graveyard hate of choice, just in general. Being able to, you know, get it into play without having to spend a turn on it uh, against uh, Ironworks is really powerful. And often, like, in that matchup in particular, because they're, like, a turn 3.5 deck, like, you may be able to just cast the one you you ended up drawing on turn 2 or 3 and the... the drawback isn't that bad and it it retains that like lightning speed uh in the opening hand you know it if you start with a ley line against vengevine that is much much better than a turn two rest in peace against vengevine yeah ley line ley line can just be game over for this deck um mm-hmm. because like a lot of versions that i've seen just aren't even running any ways of getting a ley line off the battlefield and i think that that's probably gonna have to change uh, I think that they there are you know a lot of really good tools that the you know the sideboard can have here. A lot of people are splashing green for destructive revelry in the sideboard. Honestly, I think that splashing white for a playset of Wisp Mares is actually just way better because it allows you to potentially you know kill their thing and then use your neonate to sacrifice a, or, and discard a Vengevine. And then like cast mm. another creature or something, like that's yeah, not that's unreasonable cute. for that to happen. Yeah, I mean you need to be in a pretty specific place where you are worried about enchantments and not artifacts to to spend those those slots, which you might be like maybe you which, just don't. Which I think honestly we we pretty clearly are with with Vengevine right now. Okay, like you don't you're you're not really interested in the value artifact destruction against like Affinity or Ironworks. Like that's not yeah, the plan that you're right. on in those matchups. Yeah, Ingature is just so good in that deck as well. It's just kind of, like, worth having a couple um, just to, like, you know, beat up on Affinity some more, kill some annoying artifacts and stuff like that. Ensnaring Bridge can be a pretty big problem, so that's, you know, you just want some answers yeah. to that. But, yeah, I really, really like these Evoke uh, creatures. I think that they're really strong, particularly yeah. in, this, in this deck, because it just synergizes so well with what's going on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a lot of separate slots to spend on, like, disenchant effects, which is definitely you know caution inducing but in a deck like this you're never sideboard you can never sideboard in eight cards or anything like that in any matchup so and since you are so proactive like most of your sideboarding is to address the things they're doing to stop you rather than you know uh, sideboarding against their proactive strategy yeah so yeah for sure because your proactive strategy if it works i think it's just better than honestly everything else in the format it's ridiculous (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I buy that. It's very fast, and the, like, Gravecrawler bridge sacrifice outlet combo is, like, very, very grindy. So that's just powerful. Yeah. Like, if, if your opponent isn't interacting with your graveyard, not only are you faster than, like, even Crackline Ironworks and Storm, but I think that, you know, you also have potential to, like, outgrind a lot of the, the grindy decks, right? So yep. it feels like the only way that people can attack this is, is by attacking your graveyard. 
which puts a really heavy strain on what people need to do in modern. So we'll see what kind of the impact of that looks like moving forward. Well, I think one piece of the impact of that, and this is also as a response to Hollow One and as a response to like combo decks that just don't care about lightning bolts and lightning helixes, is that the control deck of choice right now is absolutely white-blue control. This is the second most played deck in the field. Yeah. Three times as many as Jeskai control definitely seemed, you know, hard to tell, but seemed to perform significantly better than a deck like Jeskai control and just is better positioned right now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that we've seen that trend over the past couple of weeks in modern. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, unsurprising. You know, these, these blue-white, like, Miracles decks popped up, honestly, like a month or so ago, maybe even a little longer. Um, and they've slowly kind of behind the scenes been getting tuned and, like, played by really good players in modern. But I think that now, kind of like the the general masses are catching up, realizing that just strict blue white control is very very strong. Yeah, and I think maybe the thing that has really pushed this to be just the right choice is like there's one deck in the format that Lightning Bolt is really good against, right? And that's humans. But with the advent of Militia Bugler as now just a four of in humans, that plan is a lot less strong and you're you probably maybe not would rather but the advantage of being a lightning bolt deck against humans is much smaller than it used to be and so being the terminus deck you know maybe isn't actually better against humans maybe it is slightly better but it's fine compared to being the lightning bolt snapcaster deck so you know if that gap has closed even if it's just because of humans getting better but if that gap has closed, that makes Jeskai a lot less tempting to be. And so being blue-white control and just having better matchups against, you know, most of the field, Lightning Bolt is just not that great of a card. And that means don't don't run them in your control deck. Play play your Path to Exiles, play your Terminuses, like get a little bit lucky and, and miracle your Terminuses and you'll have a good deck. Yeah, I agree for sure. It's interesting to note how blue-white control has just kind of taken over magic in general. It's taken over, it, you know, it's it's really well positioned. We were talking about it in standard. It's kind of taken over the control slot in modern. And even in legacy, you know, Miracles was a, you know, the de facto best deck for a long time. And, and part of it got banned even. But we're still seeing like blue-white control decks have success in legacy. And honestly, I think it's just kind of like due to maybe the imbalance of like you know uh the color pie a little bit like blue draws cards and counter spells and white answers everything so it's just like kind of like a perfect combination of like yeah dude blue white control it's a thing and it's it's gonna be probably good in magic forever yeah and especially you know in in standard and modern the addition of and, and even to some extent in legacy but Search for Ascanta and Teferi are just two incredibly powerful cards that just contribute super meaningfully to the deck's ability to close, to answer permanence, to to dig for the specific answers it needs to, to threats. And yeah, those cards are both extremely powerful and, and huge contributors to its success. Like in Standard, you know, we're losing a couple of cards in rotation. We're losing like Disallow, we're losing some, some card drawing cards. But since Search for Ascanta and Teferi are still going to be in standard, there will be counter spells you can play. There will be card drawing spells you can play. There will be wrath effects that you can play. 
and and there will be settled the wreckage. But you know, the fact that we will still have Teferi and we will still have Search for Azkanta means that blue white control will still be a deck in standard. Like yeah. no matter what. And and Teferi and Search for Azkanta, these are kind of the two cards that have really pushed it over the edge in all the formats. We're seeing yep. Search for Azkanta in every format. We're seeing Teferi in modern and standard and, you know, I think that I saw some some legacy builds with like a, a teferi or two yeah i saw some vintage decks in the the vintage super league with a couple of teferis in vintage? So. <laughs> no man yeah it's crazy yeah that card is i i mean you know i i said when we reviewed the set you know teferi is a card that is just kind of scary and it has really proven that that has really borne that out teferi is a really scary card and unfortunately contributes to some less than great play patterns like the fact that it can tuck itself and be your win condition it should not be part of how the card works like unequivocally it should not be it's not good design and i think it's something that probably got missed in development um and and the number of games that end up with one player like facing an emblem that's going to exile all their permanents and no you know like a small percentage chance to like uh, like chain some burn spells if opponent misses on on a, a counter spell or two or something like that so maybe you should stick it out or maybe you should maybe it's higher ev to like try to time your opponent out on magic online or something like that like it just creates like pretty kind of negative play experiences in general so that's un- unfortunate but the power of the card cannot be denied. Yeah, for sure. Teferi, Teferi's taken over magic, and and we'll kind of, you know, it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. But it's definitely happening, and we're seeing it right now. Yep. So, I mean, those were kind of the two big stories, uh, is that, like, blue-white is the control deck of choice for sure in modern. Um, uh, Vengevine is, you know, kind of becoming... Definitely the graveyard-based aggro deck of choice. But Humans was the most played deck and performed just fine. And and really, like, we saw it in most of the matches that we watched in the PT, and it was winning a lot of them. So Humans is still in a great place. Yeah, Humans is, is I think, in a pretty solid place, and it just got a pretty significant, you know, power-level boost, which is crazy, but, uh, you know, not something that you see happen to a Tier 1 deck all the time. But I definitely think it happened with Militia Bugler. So the format kind of, you know, again, we got kind of a distilled version of the modern format. And you look at the top played decks here, and they are really, you know, the the cream of the crop in the format. We've got Humans, Blue White Control, Ironworks, Mono Green, Hollow One, Black Red Vengevine. And then the decks trail off a little bit from there, um, become about like, you know, they're in the three percentage point bracket after that. And honestly, I think that if you are trying to win a tournament, you should be playing one of these decks. And and it's not always going to be the same one that is going to be right for any particular weekend in the coming couple of months. But uh, probably these are just the most powerful things you can be doing right now. And it's kind of a mistake to not just take advantage of that. Yeah, I agree for sure. We, you know, we're, we're just seeing so clearly so many of these decks have, like, really big power level gaps over the rest of the format, and I think that if you're not taking advantage of that, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're kind of putting some equity on the table. Yeah. Yeah, like, the fact that, like, four people brought Burn to this Pro Tour, like, 
like, yes, if you, if you are, you know, playing, going to a tournament, like, playing your own cards, like, you, you're going to enjoy yourself, you know how to play Burn, like, fine, play Burn. I think if you take Burn to a modern Pro Tour right now, you gave up at some point in the <laughs> testing process, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Unless, you know, unless you're playing, like, a, a new and improved Bomat Courier, Bump in the Night Burn, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. <laughs> Um, then, you know, if you're just bringing on, like, good old Boros Burn, I think that it's pretty clear that that deck is, while fine in Modern, you know, you're not really, you're not really, uh, breaking anything. It hasn't gotten anything for, what, like, four years now or something? Like, yeah, it's just working with old technology, and, and it can't keep up. But, you know, I think that, I, I haven't really given up hope on this, uh, on this Bomat, Bump of the Night Burn deck. Um, All right. I think that it's just like clearly stronger than the other burn deck, faster, so it could potentially keep up with some of these other fast linear decks. But it, unfortunately, I think burn in general is just not quite as it's not really that well positioned right now as a deck for 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 me to justify trying to really really go in on that yet. So yeah, decent number of Thalia's running around, like just lots of difficult propositions, I guess. So after. Like, like, talk me down from this, you know, because looking at those top decks, and I, I think it is probably correct to just play one of them, looking at these, it weirdly seems like Titan Shift with a bunch of interactive elements in the main deck might be super well positioned right now. Am I crazy? Like, if you are running, like, multiple main deck Anger of the Gods and Relic of Progenitus? Yeah, I can see that. If... If all of these linear aggro decks become really, I'm failing to find the correct word, but you know, like susceptible if, if, if to your anger of the gods and your and your relic of progenitus are you know going to help you in those linear aggro deck matchups a lot, then I can mm-hmm. definitely see you know Titan Shift succeed. But Titan Shift is generally just going to struggle against really fast goldfish decks. So you know you're going to struggle against Storm and you know everything else like similar to that so like all of like the combo decks and even like the linear aggro decks as long as they're fast enough and modern is just getting faster and faster so if we can find a really good way that like fits in well enough with the plan of titan shift and interacts in a favorable way then then i'm in for sure but you know i'm not 100 percent sold that that's the case yeah i mean probably right like it just kind of suffers from that burn problem of being just a little bit underpowered a little bit too slow in actually ending the game and you know like on the draw against vengevine like anger of the gods might just not even be fast enough like they might just get you too low and then you know sacrifice their vengevine put it back into play and finish you off so it's definitely not the the be all end all and you also don't always draw your anger of the gods and they're just gonna run you over if you don't so yeah so maybe Maybe a bridge too far, and I like, you know, you want to try to pick, sort of pick the right of these top, you know, five or six decks. Really, probably five decks, because Hollow One definitely seems like a worse Vengevine right now. So you want to try to pick the right one for the weekend. But any of these decks are probably live to top eight on any given weekend. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, uh, Vengevine, probably the most exciting thing. Probably what I'm going to be playing since I just bought the cards for it, anyways. And yay. Yeah. <laughs> It's a blast to play, honestly. And and I always love it when it comes together as like a deck that's really fun to play and is really good in the format. So I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm I'm excited.
What I will not be playing anytime soon is Legacy. So, <laughs> you know, we can talk about this for a little bit, but yeah. there's not too much Legacy coming up anytime soon. I know that SCG Baltimore is going to be Legacy, but that's not until like the end of September, right? Yeah, I, I, I believe that is true. Yeah, I mean, the, we definitely saw some cool things happen with Legacy. The Death yeah. Shadow deck from, from Raptor was really awesome to see. You know, Reanimate was a pretty cool addition there. Uh, when I saw him reanimate a, a Street Wraith, I was like, all right, I'm in now. This is this is pretty sweet. Yeah, that's great. How do you kill that? Like, obviously, uh, you don't turn one reanimate it against a white deck, but if they're not a Swords to Plowshares deck, none of the removal spells in Legacy kill it, and it's yeah. unblockable against, like, 70% of Legacy. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? And that was that was pretty awesome to see. So so just pretty, like, excellent, like, metagaming and deck, deck building there from... Uh, from Josh Layton. so that was that was pretty awesome to see him get rewarded for that. Yeah, he's he is so good. He's really good at magic. Oh my god. Yeah, every once in a while you see somebody just like either do something or play a certain deck, and you're just like, "Whoa, I'm not even close. This is crazy." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this deck definitely was the standout build of the format, and and you look at it and it looks like a legacy deck. You know, like it is just interaction cheap or free interaction one mana threats the cantrips that you need to make sure you've got the right assortment of stuff and four wastelands like this is a really pure legacy deck and it's doing the things that traditionally have been powerful in legacy for the past six or seven years yeah so it's it's definitely like you know crafted along pretty traditional lines but doing those things about as efficiently as you possibly can do them right now for sure. I will say that it is definitely like a beatable deck. You know, like the, there's a reason that they had those those Dread of Knights in their sideboard, which is that Death and Taxes just matches up really well against it if, if there is no, no Dread of Knight in play. And like, I also don't really see how this deck beats a Baleful Strix. So, which is really interesting because because Grixis or control a was... to plowshares, you know. <laughs> right, right. Or a Swords to plowshares. <laughs> but it's really interesting... Because Grixis Control was the top played deck in this format, which, you know, it's this is the most diverse of the three formats of the Pro Tour. Grixis Control was only 12% of the meta, so I guess that's not that bad. But, you know, Grixis Control and Death and Taxes were both in the top four played decks, and Raptor just didn't have problems this tournament. I, I think he won every single match, is what I heard. So That's um, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. What an impossible feat. But it makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Like, he probably was the best legacy player in the room and had the most tuned deck, and that's a good combination. So, yeah, yeah. you know, congrats to him, for sure. Yeah. And kind of like the other big story, I think, you know, was just about... didn't really show as much in this metagame breakdown, but I think Death, death and Taxes is, like, most improved it feels like of you know the new legacy format yeah it's you it's know. caught up right that's that's how it feels right uh port is now insanely good again and brightling just adds a whole another element to the deck that didn't exist before so and uh palace jailer could not have looked better than it did in those finals oh yeah that card is pretty bonkers so yeah i'm i'm i, I think that death and taxes is definitely another you know Big big takeaway from from this tournament a little bit is that like you know that deck is back and and here to stay. 
Yeah. Yeah, the the fact that most of the format lost Deathrite Shaman, and that was kind of their way to fight against sort of the, the slow grindy game that Death and Taxes presents, that's that's really you know, like it, it lets you get out from their mana denial of wasteland and port, and it lets you, you know, they can kill you, but sometimes it takes a couple turns longer than than decks that have like Gurmag Anglers and stuff, and that might be the difference uh, between you being able to drain them out with your with your Deathrite Shaman. The fact that you just nobody sto- goes turn one Deathrite Shaman against Death and Taxes is a huge boost to that deck. Yeah, definitely agree with you there. So and no reserveless cards. So if you want to build this deck, like you actually you can. So that's cool. Yeah, I mean you know, and the, I think that the recent reprinting of Rashad and Port helped a lot with that as well. Yeah, um, they're not like Buku's expensive anymore. Right. It's it's like an expensive modern deck now instead of. Right. I never would have considered playing it before, but now I think it is a tier one legacy deck for sure. Yeah. Cool. That's probably all we really need to say. About legacy, yeah, I think right? that covers most of my thoughts on you know the formats and stuff. So like less crazy stuff in legacy than than the other formats, and also probably less relevant to what most of our listeners are are thinking about right now. So <laughs> sure, yeah, definitely. Shall we move on to our Patreon question of the week? Let's do it. All right. So Alex Riley asks, uh, and this is you know kind of long so that we can sort of explain what the question is about. Um, But he asks, Do you think Magic players are overly concerned with expected value? I have a group of friends who are pretty jaded about playing in Magic tournaments and have the mentality of, quote, wanting to play as little Magic as possible while still winning. If they went to a Grand Prix and missed cash in the last round, they'll claim something like, I wasted the most amount of time possible for no reward. How do you weigh intangible expected value? For example, time spent getting to play, helping somebody improve, etc., compared to cold, hard prizes for your time. And how do you think the larger community would benefit from examining their own evaluation? So a little backstory, I guess, on this question was, like, the initial question that was posted in our group was, do you think that Magic players are overly concerned with EV? And Mm -hmm. I had a kind of like a gut reaction to that, and I was like, overly concerned with EV? What are you talking about? EV's great, you know? <laughs> yeah, so I think that just kind of went to show how he's right. Magic players do have put a lot of value on expected value. But I I agree now that he kind of like explained what he was talking about a lot with the fact that I think a lot of Magic players take that concept a little too far. Because, you know, we talk a lot about value and, you know, I just kind of always have this mental image of Michael Braverman rubbing his hands together and going, value, <laughs> you know, and that's always fun. But but I, I can see what he's saying where, you know, a lot of the times we, we kind of expect too much from this game a little bit. And, you know, we we kind of get a little spoiled in certain certain instances in terms of a lot of things that are going on. And then we, we kind of, like, fail, I guess, to appropriately determine where we're getting a lot of our value from and because he you know he mentioned the fact that a lot of players they're only happy if they end up like cashing an event right because then they feel like their weekend is worth it but they've Mm -hmm. forgotten at that point that they got to spend their weekend playing magic the gathering so you know you get to a point i guess where you just kind of lose track of you know why you got into this game in the first place and you know and the fact that the game is really enjoyable and and if you're not actually getting that enjoyment out of it then you're probably not playing for the right reasons or you're just not playing for reasons that are going to be sustainable for you just because you know 
if you're only playing it to try to you know win win money then it's just not going to be realistic for you so i right i i think that a lot of a lot of magic players are super value oriented but they kind of all have like i i don't want to generalize too much i think that a lot of magic players have money signs in their eyes when it comes to to a lot of stuff they want to get value off of you know, buying and selling magic cards, they want to get value off of, you know, tournament prize winnings, they want to get value off of all this, like, real tangible, like, stuff that's happening. But I agree that, you know, that can definitely be taken too far, and kind of, like, push magic players into kind of a mental, like, a, a mindset where they're just kind of setting themselves up for disappointment, and and then inevitably, when they are disappointed, that just kind of, like, makes them... Uh, enjoy the game less and i think that a lot of that does have to do with the the overvaluing of of just like getting real tangible like monetary value out of this hobby that we play so i think that if you can do more to find the value in in kind of like the intangible aspects of of playing this game then you're just going to be much much happier with it i think part of the reason why i love this game personally so much is because I love learning. I love the learning aspect. I love how it's, you know, our uh, the ceiling on understanding of this game is so impossibly out of reach that we kind of like always have an opportunity to to learn and grow and and I just get that every tournament that I go to kind of no matter what. It doesn't matter if I, you know, don't make day 2 or drop out early or you know or if I win the event, you know, it's you know, it's always something that I'm going to get value from is that learning experience. So I think that, you know, more players need to kind of take another step back and realize that there's there's more to it than just, you know, the dollar signs that are <laughs> that are up for yeah. grabs. You know what I mean? And and I think that kind of connects to like you've talked about before, you know, you often set a goal for yourself going into a tournament. But your mm-hmm. goal is never make top 16 or, or whatever. Like your goal yeah. is always a, a process based one, right? Yeah. And I think that's really important. Like, I think that if you go into something setting a goal, that goal needs to be 100% in your control. And because this is a game of variance, winning the event isn't 100% in your control. You have to get lucky to do that. So I think that, you know, winning the event is is kind of like a goal that isn't going to be quite as fulfilling for you if you actually accomplish it. If you set a goal like, I want to make sure that every time we go from game two to three... I pick up my sideboard again and I reassess if I want to change how I'm sideboarding based on if I'm on the player of the draw or based on what I've seen. If I do that every match that I play this tournament, I feel like I've succeeded because that's going to be my goal for that tournament. And, you know, and if you accomplish that goal, it just feels so good because it was 100% in your control and you could do it. And it doesn't matter if you scrubbed out of the tournament or whatever, as long as you've done that, you've learned something. And that just means so much to me. If, if we're talking expected value here, I think you can't limit your value analysis to the money you get out of a tournament. Because, you know, like I can count on my fingers how many tournaments I've sig- significantly cashed, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's just not, this is not a plus EV hobby if you only consider monetary rewards as, as value. But... Go to a tournament and, yeah, look at your sideboard between game two and game three and, and decide if you are if you want to sideboard more. That value that you're getting is you're building that habit and you're probably going to be more likely to do that in future tournaments. That is value. And, like, you can come away not winning any matches and still getting that value out of the tournament. 
like like I like that because that's a specific example that that you know you don't always think of as part of the value of magic is like that's very specific practice that you can focus on. I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but like one of the things that I that has really struck me in reading what some pro players have written, like Brad Nelson has said this, and a couple of other people recently have have mentioned it in their articles. But like when they're playing comp leagues, uh, when they're playing Magic Online and testing out constructed decks, it's not just that they are, uh, they're obviously not playing for the prizes in the comp leagues or else nobody would, would drop it at 4-0 uh, to hide their deck list. Like that's not the value that they're going for. But the value is also not just this like general, like play Magic, practice Magic, get better at it. They have very specific goals in mind, testing out specific slots, like learning about like what cards are important in what matchups and, and how things are positioned in the metagame. And they change they change their deck after every single match, but there's specific things that they're trying to find out every time they enter a league. And so having those like very specific goals every time you sit down and play Magic, I think really helps you feel like you did accomplish something after playing. And then in addition to that are the sort of basic things like this is a game. There is value in playing every game of Magic because it's fun. In order to justify going like spending money traveling to a GP, paying the entry fee, like doing the work to get your deck together. Like if you're not enjoying the games themselves and if you're not enjoying the challenge of playing against players who are trying to beat you as hard as they can, then you probably need to take a step back. Because like most of the value of the game for me is like hanging out with people at tournaments and talking about magic because I love talking about magic with people who care about it as much as I do. And then getting to play relatively high stakes or at least like serious matches with something on the line like the the feeling you get when you're playing those matches i, I would not go to gps if i knew i was going to o3 drop every single one but much of my value from going to the gp it has to come from things outside of winning enough matches to prize like or else why aren't you just playing poker or something like that? Or why aren't you just going to work? Like, this yeah. is a game and it's fun. And your friends are there. And that is part of... That is value. Hanging out with your friends is value. Like, that's just a good reason to be at a tournament is if your friends are there. So... Yeah. Completely agree. I, I get so much out of the social aspects of Magic. And, and I, I you know, the, the past couple of years have really shown me that in a, in a really clear and awesome way. And, you know, and I, I just want that for, for everybody else in that's playing Magic as well, you know, to just, like, be able to enjoy just, you know, being there with your friends and, and stuff like that. And I know that, you know, whether or not you recognize that that's what you're getting out of Magic, it's happening for a lot of people, which is which is really awesome. And, and it's really great that this game is such a community-oriented game. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe my response to this question is, like, a little... Like, I want to be clear that I, I don't think that this feeling of, like, you know, you lose in the last round and then you finish outside of top 64 and you, you, you don't prize. Like, that is disappointing. And the temptation to be like, God, I just wasted my whole weekend. Like, that temptation is pretty strong. And I am not saying that I've never felt like that. Like, especially with, like, Magic Online. Like, if I'm playing a Moto PTQ and I, I like, become dead for top 8 in the last, like, two rounds or so then it really does feel like I, I kind of wasted my day and I have mm. to, like, like I need to look back and realize, like, hey, I learned some things by playing this. And I think part of what I need to do as well is set those goals before the tournament so that I 
you know, win or lose, I am practicing something specific. And I think that's a really good way of guaranteeing some sort of value from, from playing the matches. But it's interesting to note how that's, that, you know, that situation is the least social, you know, it's magic <laughs> online, right? So you're not, you're not hanging out at a, at a convention with a bunch of your friends. You're kind of, you know, in your own room playing on, playing on magic online. So it's, it's interesting how that's, uh, you know, that's the time where you feel the most like you've wasted your time. Right. Um, and it makes sense, honestly. Yeah. And, and also like the GPs that I've gone to, cause I've gone to one or two where I didn't really know anybody there and then doing badly in a GP when I am just kind of on my own, like, yeah, that feeling is very strong at that point. So, so it's similar. And, and at, at that, you know, like the expenditure to sit down and play a magic online PTQ is not great. Like I haven't lost that much value. The expenditure of time and, and money and to, to go to a GP and and o three or whatever or or you know miss day two and also not hang out with people that's that's pretty pretty significant so i guess i don't have anywhere in particular that i'm going with that but i i really like those you know setting those process-based goals for individual games of magic and that can make like any tournament result in a positive value for you uh i think that it is just kind of like all you know the, the 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 overvaluing just kind of like the 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 real tangible stuff i think is is definitely kind of an issue with with magic players a lot so mm-hmm. um you know i think that could be yeah. easily fixed with a change of mindset in you know in terms of like understanding that you're getting other sorts of value out of this game but you know changing a mindset is it's just one of the hardest things to do in life. So, <laughs> yeah, it's not. It's not like we can snap our fingers and make that so. Yeah, and, and and definitely like we've all felt like this, and it's it's definitely possible to let disappointment in a, a performance that didn't hit where you wanted to be let that kind of take over and and make you question. But something is making you want to go to these tournaments, and I think it, most people, if you're honest with yourself, you're not going to this GP like hoping that you make top 64 and that's the reason you're there. And so if you if you like write down before the GP why you're going and then compare it to like why you're disappointed after, I think it might help give you some context and, and a little perspective there. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, I probably rambled on enough about <laughs> that then. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, interesting things to talk about. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. Well... Yeah, so that's that's the PT. That's concerns about expected value in going to magic tournaments. I I think we've I think we can call that a show for the day. Yeah. Lots of good stuff that we talked about, for sure. Yeah. If you want to find us online, uh you can head over to our website, uh mtggrindcast.com. Uh you can find Collins's coaching there as well as, you know, contact information for us and any content that we've got. Um if you want to lend us some support, you can head over to there to find a link to our Patreon or go straight to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. And like I said before, we are gearing up to hopefully start sending out rewards pretty soon. So if you're interested in getting on that train, um, physical rewards will exist as well as access to the Discord and other sort of like bonus content kind of stuff. And yeah, you can also find us on Twitter. I am tweeting from at mtg underscore grindcast and Collins is also on Twitter at Collins Mullen. Thank you guys all for listening and have a great week. Peace. Peace.